Hey, Chris. Hey, Tim. How are you? Ah, terrible. <laughs> I think baseball is ruining me for the 12th year in a row. Baseball is ruining me. <laughs> uh, congratulations to your Cleveland Guardians for making the postseason. You obviously have it made. There's nothing wrong in your world. Yeah, still celebrating that 1948 World Series championship. Hey, that's something. That is something. I'll root for them in the playoffs. This is our Veterans Committee episode of Hall of Songs in which we nominate some songs that we didn't nominate in our previous several main episodes. We'll be going back in time between 1986 and 1990. No, 87 and 90, of course, Tim. That's what we're going to do here. We're going to do it in 5, 4, 3, 2. Hello, welcome to Hall of Songs. Welcome, music lovers and loyal listeners, to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I am Tim Malcolm. I'm Chris Jones. Yeah, so we have had some real listener feedback as of late. I've gotten some emails. I know you've gotten some feedback from people. We'll get into all of that a little bit later, but I feel like we're finally making some traction as we get toward the end of Hall of Songs. Maybe our listeners are just really fired up about the late 80s. Is that it? Just because it's music that they really know? Because they grew up with it? Maybe that's it? <laughs> Bunch I don't of old, know. old guys. Bunch of, yeah, old Gen Xers and, and boomers and such. All of you out there, you are making me... Well, you're not making me as disappointed as the Philadelphia Phillies. Let me put it that way. But... Nevertheless, we will get into all the fun stuff with the music that we're going to talk about in this episode in just a moment. Again, welcome to Hall of Songs. This is our Veterans Committee episode. For those of you who are new to this podcast or relatively new and have not heard a Veterans Committee episode yet, we do a podcast in which we talk about what we think are the best songs from each year. And we started this podcast with the year 1951. Now we're 1990. It was our latest episode. 1991 is coming up next. And... After four episodes in our evolution, we stop, we take a moment, and we decide to talk about some songs from those last four years that we didn't put in our top 12s or our top songs of the year from that year. So what we do instead is we decide to put our heads together and say, these are the four songs from the last four years 
that we are we are putting into the nominee list, and they will be put on the list on the ballot that we have at hallofsongs.com, and they will be put on the ballot after our 1991 episode. And then you get to vote on those. The whole concept of this podcast, Chris, as you know, is to determine the greatest songs of all time. You have the power voter to say what are the greatest songs of all time. And how do you do that, Chris? How, how do people do that? Well, as soon as an episode goes live, one of our yearly episodes or our episodes that are based on yours, go to hallofsongs.com, find the episode, scroll down, and you'll be able to vote for up to 10 songs. If a song gets two-thirds or more of the votes, it gets into the Hall of Songs, it, the illustrious Hall of Songs. Mm. If a song gets uh, 35 or less than 35%, it gets dropped from the ballot. Otherwise, it sticks on. So you can have uh, multiple chances to vote for songs. They'll be able to you know, stick on for a few years or so, so you can compare them to other songs, not just the ones from the same year that they were nominated for. So uh, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Go vote. I guess when this comes out... Uh, uh, it may be wrapping up. Maybe there'll be a day or so left or a little bit, of, a couple hours left. But, uh, you know, even if you missed this one, tune in for our 1991 episode, which will be coming up in a couple weeks. And uh, make sure you go vote. Yeah, what he's talking about is our latest election, our 36th election that ends on October 2nd. And that features songs that were released between 1985 and 1990. Those are songs that either stayed on the ballot from elections past, or they are songs that we just introduced to the ballot in our 1990 episode. So there's stuff like Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor, Friends in Little Places by Garth Brooks, Man in the Box by Allison Chains, Express Yourself by Madonna, Cult of Personality by Living Color, True Colors by Cindy Lauper, whole bunch of songs from the 80s and 1990 that are on the ballot right now. So Go to hoffsongs.com, and if it is still October 2nd, you're hearing this, go vote if you haven't voted yet. If not, you can then come back later and vote for in our 37th election, which will have the songs that we're going to talk about in this episode on that ballot. We do have some relatively new members of the Hall of Songs to just mention real quick, just because it's been a little while and we can spoil them now. Our 35th election took place a couple of weeks ago, and two new Hall of Songs inductees. Chris, what are they? Uh, those were Free Fallen by Tom Petty and uh, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Both uh, from 1989 and elected their first year on the ballot. Yeah, good mix there. We've had some really fun elections lately. That one got two. Before that, we had an election that got five songs into the Hall of Songs. Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, Raspberry Beret by Prince. In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, Straight Out of Compton by NWA, and It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock. So a lot of different kinds of sounds coming into the Hall of Songs, rap and adult contemporary and psychedelic pop and singer-songwriter coffeehouse stuff. So tons of stuff all about the late 80s coming in lately. We'll see what happens in our 36th election. Those results will be out on what October seventh, and then we will have our nineteen ninety one episode on October ninth, I believe, and then we will take a two week break to get our better things in order, and then we will come back with our nineteen ninety two stuff after that. But uh, yeah, get ready. So this is going to be for our thirty seventh election, as I said in this episode. Chris and I are going to select four more songs that will be nominated for the Hall of Songs. These are songs that came out between 1987 and 1990. And what we usually do is we kind of pick our own two each that we like. 
we don't necessarily fight about it. I might fight with you on one of these in this one. We'll see. Uh, and then after we talk about our nominees, we then use the rest of the episode to sort of just talk about the years in general, 87 and 90, pick out some things that we want to talk about at more length and just stuff that we like or fun stuff or whatever. So that's what this episode's all about. It's a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more fun. So that's what we're going to do. Chris, before we get into the nominees, any thoughts about this group that we're about to usher into the ballot? Uh, this is a lot of fun. I think these are some really fun songs to talk about. The, it's, I mean, as we get more and more into it, it just gets harder and harder. I mean, it's like just the sheer number of songs that have been released uh, makes it harder. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's this is not, we can have this discussion. We have had this discussion about like the prime eras of music and things like that. But it's like, literally just as a matter of numbers, there are so many more songs, so many different types of songs being released that it gets harder and harder. So it's like, uh, that makes this process pulling, you know, four from this four-year period just really, really hard. But it also means that those four that you pick are going to be a lot of fun to talk about. I'm going to say it was pretty easy for Chris. <laughs> because let's start with our first nominee from 1987. Chris, please introduce our next nominee to the Hall of Songs for the Veterans Committee. Well, Tim, it must be getting early. The clocks are running late. Because the good old Grateful Dead are going to make their first appearance on the ballot with their smash hit from 1987, Touch of Grey. I don't know, man. Is this one of the best 16 songs from not 16? What, what's the number? The best 52 songs from between 1987 and 1990. Is this what you're saying? I think there was a colorful argument to put this one in 1987 based on all of the factors, uh, you know, uh, it it was a popular song. I was sort of being facetious about being a smash hit, but it was a top 10 hit. And there's a lot that sort of went into this. I mean, this is sort of the culmination of 22 years of the Grateful Dead and would uh, the the narrative is overplayed, let's put it that way, but it did sort of uh adjust the trajectory of the Grateful Dead if nothing else. Is this the climax of the long strange trip? <laughs> I like that. I hadn't thought about that. Uh you know, it's not sort of the the prime Grateful Dead like, you know, we've talked about them. I've talked about them ad nauseum. We've talked about some of their live stuff. I think that what stands apart here is that Touch of Grey is a great, it, it was their maybe their most successful effort at taking what they did well live and translating it to something in the studio that could then be put out for popular consumption. They tried that many times and failed miserably. This was sort of the one success that they had at that. And, uh, uh, you know, and again, it was, was popular. They were able to sort of do the MTV crossover and do something that was, uh, uh, you know, that has a lasting effect. I mean, you know, for better and for worse, as some Grateful Dead fans will tell you. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to do the bio for the Grateful Dead. It makes absolutely no sense to do that in this in this uh, arena. 
essentially what you need to know is that this is on the album in the dark it was their first album since go to heaven in 1980 which is one of the greatest album covers of all time the songs on in the dark a lot of them were in the dead's repertoire and what they did for the album as you said kind of trying to do it like they do a live show is they were in a darkened theater and recorded the songs in this theater but there was no crowd but they did have their lighting set up all done so it was as if they were playing live to a crowd but there was no crowd to actually give them feedback this is about getting old basically touch of gray i mean it's not hard to realize that but because it had a really fun video and i think because yeah the boomers who were really into the dead at this point were kind of buying their stuff and and there was a sense of renewed, oh, this band, you know, uh, there's something more to them, I guess, than this whole hippie thing that they were doing for the past 20 plus years. It became a big hit, number nine on the Hot 100 at its peak, and it was also number one on the mainstream rocks Rockets chart, which is just remarkable. We're talking about a time in 1987 when I guess Guns N' Roses isn't quite hitting at this point because this is uh, Guns N' Roses doesn't really hit to like 88 or so. But you do have sort of that early phase of hair metal happening. You have sort of Van Halen stuff happening. I'm sure you have a lot of other stuff from 86. I can't think of off the top of my head. There's some, obviously some like new wave and synth pop kind of British stuff that's still on the charts from this era. This being a number one rock hit is really impressive. Really impressive. The narrative of Touch of Grey and the narrative of Deadheads, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, is that they were living in this sort of like hippie wonderland where they'd go do these tours and everyone would show up and be all nice to each other. And then touch of gray came out and then all these people sort of started following the dead around and became this evil sinister place that was overloaded. And they were playing, you know, venues that were too big and uh, you know, it set the whole thing off uh, course, which I mean, like I said, it, that's not just oversimplified. It's really wrong. I mean, the dead just released a box set of, uh, shows from Madison Square Garden of in 81, 82, and 83. I mean, they were they were selling out the garden well before uh, Touch of Grey was ever released as a single, uh, well before In the Dark. And the scene had already become, you know, quite a bit different and quite a bit seedier. I mean, it's like, it's a nice tale to tell that it's like, oh, they became popular and everything went downhill. That's just not true. I mean, they're the the... There are great books written about sort of the scene of the Grateful Dead and what changed and things like that. But... Uh, uh, you know, with all that being said, I think that the song hits a lot of people in different places. And I mean, you're you're right. I mean, it's like there were sort of aging baby boomers hear this and it's about getting old. But there's also just sort of younger people and seeing sort of this sort of rebirth of the Grateful Dead of Jerry had been out with a diabetic coma for a couple of years. And it's sort of this sort of return song. It's I think it's a thing that people turn to a lot, uh, you know, sort of, you know, I can get through this. I can get by. Uh, I have a joke with some friends that it's like instead of uh, I don't play happy birthday or I don't sing happy birthday on my birthday I listen to Touch of Grey Robert Hunter wrote the lyrics he's actually you know he's inducted in the Hall of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Grateful Dead as their lyricist uh, Jerry pitched in here and there. I do think the lyrics here hold up really well. I think it is one of these that, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to some of the Grateful Dead songs that were really just supposed to be the bones for jam vehicles, they took this one a little bit more seriously and it shows. And it really is, like I said, I think there was an argument that this was in that upper tier class in 1987 because of this sort of, we talked a little bit about some of these uh, these bands who are throwing back to the classic rock era while also sort of doing new things. and. 
you know, I'm not going to say it's the absolute best. It's certainly, it, it probably isn't my favorite Grateful Dead song, but I do think that it's a great song. I think it's a well-written song. I think Hunter and Garcia combined well. Well, I think I know what I'm going to be getting for your birthday this coming year. A box of Just for Men, Touch of Grey. <laughs> we both lie silently still in the dead of the night Although we both lie close together We feel miles apart inside Was it something I said or something I did? Did my words not come out right? Though I tried not to hurt you Though I tried But I guess that's why they say Every rose has its thorn Just like every night Has its dawn Just like every cowboy Sings a sad, sad song all right, I'll introduce our second Veterans Committee nominee from very close to where I went to boarding school, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. This is Poison with their 1988 hit, Every Rose Has Its Thorn. Is this why you vouch for that? Because it's a Mechanicsburg thing and you're close to Mechanicsburg and all that? And no, I mean, the opposite. So we, I sort of narrowed this pick down to two. And the one that's closer to my heart is, was Heaven by Warrant. I, I don't know. I We have talked on the edges about hair metal and nothing nothing from this sort of world has made the nominee list yet so far and i think there's some good reason for that i mean it's like i don't think there's anything here that's really really influential that like poison or motley crew or white snake or uh warrant were doing like i don't think it was necessarily it was kind of like taking pop song and sort of adding this sheen to it that was much more styled than substance but i actually think that a couple of these ballads get it right and they do some things that are uh you know that are pretty clever and what i was thinking about today and listening to it is actually the the closest analog to something like you know every rose has its thorn to me or some of the like 60s girl groups where what they're able to do is to channel this energy of you know, breakup songs or love songs where it's like, it's existential. It's like, you know, if this person breaks up with me, it's like the end of the world. You know, there's no sort of this, you know, nuance to it where it's like, well, I'll get on with my life. I'll do this and that. It's like the relationship's ending. This is it. I'm done. And there is this sort of real angst. And I think that's why they were able to, you know, speak to, you know, teenage boys like me and then also teenage girls and, uh, you know, people who are sort of listening to these things and heard this sort of true, you know, love song passion in it. And and I actually think Every Rose Has Its Thorn in particular is pretty well written when it comes to the lyrics. It does tell this sort of breakup story uh, that matches the music and it's not overly trite like some of them. The Poison story, as you said, they're from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, kind of south from the Appalachian Trail. It's part of my book, Drive and Hike Appalachian Trail. At first, the band was called Paris and included vocalist Brett Sidechak, renamed Brett Michaels, bassist Robin Kuykendall, renamed Bobby Dahl, drummer Richard Ream, renamed Ricky Rocket, and guitarist Matt Smith. Maybe the problem was Smith didn't change his name. <laughs> he left in 1985. By then, the band moved to the Sunset Strip. They brought in new guitarist Bruce Johansson, renamed C.C. DeVille, and the circle was complete. 
The band signed with Small Time Enigma Records and debut album Look What the Cat Dragged In came out in 1986. That album spawned the singles Talk Dirty to Me and I Won't Forget You and helped Poison become a leader in the emerging hair metal craze on MTV. Their next album would be 1988's Open Up and Say, Ah! Every Rose Has Its Thorn, written by Michaels after being spurned by a lady while performing in Dallas, was the third single. Yeah, the existential crisis. He apparently was kind of getting into this woman and called her up because he wanted to have a night with her and some cowboy dude answered the phone or something. And that kind of spurred him <laughs> to go up. Oh, well, I guess every rose has its thorn. You know, I, I, I don't love this song. I never have. I feel like it's a really good hook with this sappy nothingness around it. And it's a little bit too over important and overindulgent. That said, it's not, cloying to the point where it would be part of my Libby Cudmore list of songs that I absolutely hate from the eighties. So I don't mind this being on the list, especially also because it was very popular and it's still very popular. It seems like one of these sort of influential songs in, in a way. Also, it kind of sounds like country. There's a, this weird, interesting bridge that's being connected here between hair metal and country music. It's not just the cowboy reference. There is some sort of a twang to this that I think makes this even more of a big mainstream hit than it probably was originally intended. Yeah, I mean, it actually charted briefly on the country charts. I think the first station to pick it up and play it as a single was a country station. As you said, it was a big hit. It was uh, number one at the end of 88, stretching into 89. I think it was number one on the Hot 100 for three uh, uh, for three weeks. It's, uh, I don't know, like you said, I, I think that this one, there's a little bit more honesty to it. And, uh, you know, like you said, it's funny. I mean, it's about this, like, you know, you, you told the story, he calls home and there's like another guy there. And all of a sudden it's like this existential crisis. But that to me like channels something like, please, Mr. Postman, where she's waiting for like this letter. And it's again, it's like, if it was just a little, it, it's, it's, trite in the way that it's overplaying its hand and it is speaking strictly to this like teenage crowd right it's like by the time you're at some sort of have reached some level of maturity you know that it's not the be-all end-all but that's exactly what they were going for here and that's why it was able to chart so high and i think this is the best example of that hair metal ballad and that sort of reaching out to that pure sort of you know heart-stricken teenager made a now I he found somebody new And that I never meant that much to you To hear that tears up inside And to see you cuts me like a knife I guess Did you know that there's a CC's Kitchen in Mechanicsburg right I've now? I've been there. Have you really? Yeah. I went to boarding school like 20 miles away from there. Well, I, I've never heard of them having any issues with poisoning, so... That's good. To Boo. Hear. <laughs> All right. What else we got? What else we got is our third nominee from this Veterans Committee episode 1989. It's the Indigo Girls with Closer to Five. I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Maybe give me insight between black and white. And the best thing you've ever done for me. Used to help me take my life less seriously It's only life after all Yeah Well darkness has a hunger that's insatiable And lightness has a call that's hard to hear 
So this was the song that I left off of my top 12 from 89 as we started talking about what our top 12s were and how we were going to put together this list. This was right there on my back pocket as my next one up. I think this is fantastic. I think if Fast Car by Tracy Chapman is the number one song from this coffee house folk movement that happens in the late 80s and early 90s, closer to find a song two. This is in my opinion, better than fast car. I actually like this more than fast car. Ooh. I don't know if it's just because, yeah, I don't know if it's just because of the rhythm or because it's just, you know, got more up tempo going or the message. I actually, I mean, the message of fast car is fantastic too, but this, the message of this one, I guess I can relate to a little bit more. Um, I've always loved it. Always loved closer to fine. Yeah, I would, I would not have gone that far. I do love it. And I think even in the 89 one, it would have been one of the, you know, really close to that cut line for me as well. Uh, I mean, I think there's something about it where I guess, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of draw it in this sort of, uh, you know, comparison to Fast Car too much. But we talked a little bit about how like that was that pushing that pushing something forward. It was sort of taking this folk music and, uh, you know, and doing something a little bit new with it. To me, this is a really, really a throwback. And it's a throwback in a really good way, which I like. But it's like it does. I think that was maybe the only thing I had in my head holding it back from getting in that top 12 what it, it was it was kind of uh uh you know a little bit out of its time that's not uh you know a criticism it's just something like it does feel like this sort of older school folk yeah. song it's got like a folk circle sort of yeah. feel to it for i sure. mean they were a bar band for a long time and yeah. it's like it does have that sort of bar band i mean you you know coffee house late night coffee house late night mm-hmm. you know sort of mm-hmm. bar acoustic feel like a open mic night type thing and it has that that feel to it and it's just a great example of that so amy ray emily sailors indigo girls they met way back in elementary school in DeKalb county georgia they formed a couple bands went off to separate colleges then came back together after both transferred to emory college in atlanta that's when in 1985 they started the band they released a single on an ep then a debut album strange fire that led to their signing with epic records as the big coffee house trend got going Next came the 1989 album, Indigo Girls. They worked with members of REM on the album, along with the Irish band Hot House Flowers, and they played and sang on the album's first track, Closer to Fine. Now, that knowledge was new to me, that Hot House Flowers was on the track, because it really does sound like just Emily and Amy playing and singing like they're around in a circle, around a fire or something like that. It has that real intimate feel which I think is the greatness of the record. There's a lot more going on underneath the voices. There's some great rhythms happening. The rhythm of the actual guitar itself, that's very percussive. Despite all of that noise, it's a very simple sort of organic feel. It's a super intimate song. And I think that's what makes this such a powerful record. Yeah, in addition to working with R.E.M., they opened for R.E.M. on the Green Tour, which was my first concert that I ever went to without my parents. The Indigo Girls opening up for R.E.M. at the West Virginia University Coliseum. I went to the doctor, I went to the mountains, I looked to the children, I drank from the fountains. There's more than one answer to these questions, pointing me in a crooked line. You alluded to this earlier. I do love the message of this. There's a positive quality to this, and there's sort of a reassurance of this that is 
uh, in and of itself, I guess, a little bit of a break from kind of the 60s, more political folk Mm -hmm. uh, that it is kind of like, you know, it's going to be okay, uh, which is a good, you know, again, it's a good message and it matches the music really well. Yeah, it's a message, I think, also of be present, right? Instead of looking everywhere for answers to life and why you're feeling down or why things can maybe get better at some point, just stop and appreciate what's in front of you a little bit, and then you're going to be better. You're going to be closer to fine. It's a great message. Uh, It's a great group. Indigo Girls have been around for a long time, and they continue to make great music. So happy to have them on the list. That brings us to one more, Chris. What will it be? You tell me. It's the return of George Michael with what is now one of the greatest songs of the 1990s, according to Pitchfork, Freedom 90. Should I log off for a bit so you can go into your rant about the uh, Pitchfork Top 250? Oh, I don't have a big rant on it. I, <laughs> honestly, I don't really have a big rant on it. I was, I guess I was a little surprised that Steal My Sunshine by Len was the 250th best track of the 90s. This is coming from somebody who actually used his own money to buy Len's Don't Stop the Bum Rush on CD in 1999. That is not the 250th best song of the 1990s. I don't think it is even in the top 750 songs of the 1990s it's a really good it's a really good someplace else with that i was going to say that might be the most 90s song of all time it's it's up there for sure there's a couple other things about the list that i wasn't a big fan of but uh, overall i thought they did a really good job spanning a lot of different genres and being real diverse with their selections and being very pop friendly as well which was great not quite sure about the number one choice i don't know if it's the best song of the 90s but i understand what they're doing freedom 90 by george michael so this one was on my sort of list of songs that I was considering for the veterans committee. And then I think the pitchfork list kind of jolted me and went, Oh man, they consider this to be the number 16 song of the nineties and the best song from 1990 that's on the list. So it's like, maybe I need to consider this a lot heavier. And about five minutes later, Chris Melanfi on Twitter decided to badge at me a little bit and say, Hey, freedom 90. Why didn't you, vote for that so you know we we decided i think i decided you know what it is the right time to do freedom 90 i love this song absolutely love it yeah i really like this too although this is an interesting one for me because uh, i don't know it, it this is potentially sort of a generational thing and i i don't want to overuse it but it's like i guess it's just timing thing right whereas like to me like i heard like i remember listening to wham and then george michael came on the scene and this kind of felt like it was sort of a next stage of his and when i go back and listen to george michael uh or when i sort of look at that it's like this seems like it's later career for him Mm -hmm. so it like it doesn't jump out to me as sort of one of those you know big big george michael songs but I go back and listen to it and it's great. And then I go and I listen to the Spotify playlists and there are Spotify plays and things like that. It's so it's up at the top and that's just me being wrong. It's like, just It's like, it's just me. It's just hitting outside of my, you know, comfort zone. It's not anything about the song, but, uh, 
like I said, it's like when I went back and listened to this over the last few days, I mean, it really is great. It's a really, it's a, it's, it just, it's a, it's a terrific song and it has all of the hallmarks of some of the great, uh, you know, George Michael songs that we've talked about and the Wham songs that we've talked about. It has that really great mix of the old school kind of throwbacks with uh, also mixing in the modern music and things like that. So the story of this, essentially George Michael was a big star after his album faith, his debut solo album, he won Grammy Album of the Year for Faith. He also won the Video Vanguard at the MTV Video Music Awards in 89, which was a big deal back then. But all the fame and fortune got to him, and he decided, you know, I need to kind of – I feel lonely. I feel lost. I need to sort of get away from all that. So for his next album, he decided to go more stripped down and be more message-focused, and the album is called Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1. This was the third single of the album, charted number eight in the U.S., 28 in the U.K., and it addresses Michael's general feeling at the time. Also provides a look back at his career as a pop idol. The title, of course, is yet another nod to, or maybe a punch at, Wham's Freedom. As you remember, in Faith, the beginning there is a quote of the refrain of freedom, that opening organ. So there it is again with this track being named Freedom again. This track would later be renamed Freedom 90 so as to not confuse people with the Wham song. I it's interesting as you say, you know, he takes the old and he takes the new. Yeah, there's a little bit of that like sort of baggy house inspired sound, the prominent pianos happening, chopped up dance beat, sort of courtesy of that funky drummer beat that was the absolute biggest beat at the time that was being sampled, the James Brown sample. But also there's bongos on the track. There's sort of this gospel-inspired backing vocal. Shirley Lewis and Dion Estes, and Dion Estes was Michael's bassist, also had a little bit of a solo career himself at this time. This seems more influenced by almost funk and 70s R&B, and it's not just the funky drummer thing. I think the entire vibe of the single feels sort of funk-influenced more than it feels influenced by current trends of house music and things like that. George Michael has this great way of sort of fusing all these things, and then he puts his voice on top of it, and it sounds just like George Michael. There's nothing else. Nobody else can do what George Michael does. Nobody else can have the George Michael sound but him. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of... uh getting into a pun based on the title this feels like it's a lot more free and a lot more loose in some ways than even something like faith which i think is intended to convey that i mean i know there was there's the idea that he was breaking loose from the record label and that's sort of where this idea came from but there there's more to it than that there is sort of a release to this song that i don't think some of the uh some of the songs on faith have when you go back and listen to it I have really appreciated the re-listening of this one and digging back into it uh, because, again, and this is all on me, it was one that was sort of slightly under the radar for me just based on where I listened to George Michael. All right, so those are the four nominees from the Veterans Committee for the Hall of Songs. They'll be part of our 37th election ballot. Again, those songs are Touch of Grey by Grateful Dead, Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison, Closer to Find by Indigo Girls, and Freedom 90 by George Michael. 
So again, those songs will be part of our 37th election. That ballot will go live on October 9th. So October 9th is when you're going to be able to start to vote for the songs there, plus songs from 1991, plus whatever's left from the latest election that got to stay on the ballot. Before we get into our second half of the show with just talk about what we like about 87 and 90, some personal stuff, Chris, why don't you tell people who are listening now how they can spread the word about Hall of Songs? All right. Well, you can find our podcast anywhere where podcasts are to be found. Uh, we like it if you find us on the Apple Podcast app. Give us a rating and a review. Uh, both of those help other people find us. But we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, any app that has podcasts as well. Hit us up on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. You can find us at all those places at Hall of Songs. And you can shoot us an email at hallofsongspod at gmail.com. Uh, we like to you know interact with people here and there. And we get suggestions sometimes. We do get suggestions. I've heard from some listeners who've talked about the picks that we've made uh, in our episodes and in the what we're thinking for the Veterans Committee and things like that. I hear you have a suggestion from a listener. Yeah, so my good friend Josh, uh, who is a loyal listener of the pod and uh, frequently weighs in with some uh, some constructive thoughts. He is never overly critical. He always sort of gives us some thoughts on, you know, gives me some things that we should have uh, maybe should have considered here and there. That means he's overly critical. He is not overly if, if you have to say it, then he is. <laughs> <laughs> so he came in and he has like, actually gave a suggestion or a, a, a potential veterans committee pick. That was one that I sort of had on my list. I guess it was 1989. And that was Epic by Faith No More. Mm-hmm, saying yeah, that maybe sure. we should have done, done that one. So I'm going to give you, he gave me some bullet points. So this is going to be pretty quick. So we talked about this a little bit particularly with uh, Unbelievable by EMF, this sort of blending of like the hip hop and the metal uh, with the dancing and kind of things like that, that it's like this, as he described, it's a hard rock banger with real guitar riffs and uh, has a guitar solo, but the, the verses are, you know, sort of presented in a rap, uh, you know, like they're, they're basically raps leading up into that. It also then has like, you know, this ballad quality to it. It ends with a piano solo and somehow they're able to combine it in a way that it doesn't feel out of touch. So that's sort of going to this blending of like, you know, blending of the harder sounds with the ballad. Uh, and then the lyrics, you know, it has this like great, great teen angst, uh, which we've talked about in a lot of songs, but it sort of has this like, you know, real release. And it's a, this is a couple years before sort of the heart of the grunge era. You know, there's the, the chorus is you want it all, but you can't have it. It's in your face, but you can't grab it. Right. It's like that does have this sort of teen angst to it. And finally, uh, you know, we've alluded this not necessarily as the you know number one thing for a song, but it plays into it a little bit. It has a great, great video, and it's got that killer, you know, image of the fish that's like flopping around, and then outside of a tank grasping for breath, and it matches the song perfectly. So, again, I think this was a good choice. This was one that I had on my uh, like I thought about sort of pushing this one up a little bit in '89. It wasn't probably in the top twelve for me, but it's a it's I I absolutely do love this song and uh, I you know I know what's I forget his name all the time the guy who's the lead singer Faith No More has gone on to do some really really great things he's been in a bunch of different bands and uh, you know I do think this one's really influential it was popular at the time and is it certainly fits in really well with the other eighty nine nominees. You're talking about Mike Patton. Patton, yes. So 
In our 1989 conversation, I had Epic very close to my top 12, and then I wrote this afterward. I really like Epic, and it represents that Cali white funk rock thing really well. I'd say it makes a damn fine VC pick. Currently, one of these 89 songs, and there was another one that we were thinking about, would make my VC picks before 90 comes into play. But I can also see it on the list. Here's what I'm going to say, Chris. You had your chances, and you decided to go a touch of gray. And every rose has its thorn. I'll just I'm say just this. Saying, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. He's seen the dead as many times as me. So he's not going to be and upset I think, about that. And I think he might also say that, you know what? Epic belongs on the list before Touch of Grey. Maybe before every rose has its thorn. <laughs> well, whatever your preference, however you feel about our picks, you can email us, as Chris said, at hallofsongspod at gmail.com. Let's move on to the next half of the episode. And in the next half of the episode, we're going to talk about 87 to 90, but going to get a little bit more free and loose talking about things that we like that weren't quite nominee worthy. But uh, Chris, if you want to lead us off with something that you want to talk about from those years, please go ahead. All right. It's time to get weird. Uh, I want to talk about Was Not Was, not a specific song, but their 1988 album, What Up Dog. Uh, I think Was Not Was is one of the most fascinating, bizarre, weird, yet also influential bands of the era. And this one actually came to me because uh, when we were doing the you know least favorite slash worst songs of the 80s, a friend of mine suggested to me Walk the Dinosaur by Was Not Was. And then I did some like Googling of the worst songs of the 80s. And this song just kept popping up. And I just think it's people who like completely did not get the song and that it was really this sort of commentary on one dance songs and sort of like things like, you know, walk like an Egyptian. And also that it was about, you know, a nuclear Holocaust basically. And that there was sort of this, there was a lot more going on. So I, this album, what up dog has been one of my favorites since it came out in 88. I've I had it on CD. I still frequently go back to this uh, was not was are they're a Detroit band and they actually started in the late seventies. It was David Weiss and Don Faganson. They then ended up going by David was and Don was Don was of course is now, you know, an Epic producer who's done, he's won four Grammys. He worked with uh, Bonnie Raitt, the Rolling Stones, the B 52s. Uh, and this is after basically writing these songs and creating the sort of band that was nothing but sort of uh, a counterculture band. Uh, there's a local Detroit paper that wrote, the Metro Times that wrote about them. Was not was like Detroit is an endearing mess. Through the 80s, the band's records were a sausage factory of funk, rock, jazz, and electronic dance music, all providing a boogie down backdrop for a radical and witty political message of unbridled personal freedom and skepticism of authority. Uh, I've loved this album since it came out. I highly recommend people go back you know, listen to this from start to finish was uh, uh, walk the dinosaur. I think really holds up well now is this sort of climate change like statement spy in the house of love uh, was also, a, you know, hit the charts and was a decent song. Uh, Outcome the freaks is sort of their signature song. In a lot of ways, they re-recorded it four times, but I specifically call your attention to 11 miles per hour, which is about Lee Harvey Oswald, training himself to become a sniper who can shoot somebody who is traveling at the speed of 11 miles an hour. It is one of the most bizarre things that you will ever hear yet. Also with a great dance beat. Uh, it's sort of emblematic of this late era, late eighties, but also something that I think had a lot of influence. 
couple points real quick. I wonder if Don changed his name because people would think that he was Don Fagan's son. <laughs> Secondly, it is a baffling album. I remember Walk the Dinosaur. 11 Miles an Hour sounds like a Return of Bruno outtake, I think. It's got that weird sort of late 80s blues thing going on that I don't like that late 80s blues thing at all, but there it is. And then there is this song, Love Can Be Bad Luck, which is co-written by Marshall Crenshaw, who is one of my absolute favorite songwriters. Fantastic songs, a couple great albums. It's like adult contemporary cheese from the early 80s. doesn't sound like anything that Marshall Crenshaw would have done, especially because in the early 80s, he was writing these indelible power pop hooky songs, right? And then there's even an Elvis Costello co-write in here called Shadow and Jimmy, which is at the end of the album. That sounds exactly like an Elvis Costello song, but it's in this Italian lounge kind of vibe. I have no idea what's going on in this album. I think you're absolutely right that this is one of the most bizarre things coming out of the late 80s, a very bizarre time truly a relic of its era and uh i'm just glad that don was was able to sort of escape that uh and, and still have a very good career cosmic thing he did cosmic thing uh he produced that that was big big hit for him a year later love shack baby love all right so i wanted to get into a huge name from the late 80s who we did not really talk about at all on this podcast i can't even remember mentioning this artist maybe we did once in passing Paula Abdul. We haven't talked about Paula Abdul. So, Forever Your Girl comes out in 1988. Choreographer turned pop star through Virgin Records huge sensation immediately she was packaged as this incredible dancer who of course is seriously attractive my older brother had a gigantic crush on her she of course was and still is very attractive i love that producers executives thought you know she's going to be a huge star if we could just make her a better singer just a little bit like the one thing that you really need to do to be a star in music they needed to get her there and I guess they did for some, you know, they did. I mean, some of these songs are real bangers. Some of them are kind of, you know, whatever. They're, they're relics of the era as well. I wanted to do something. I wanted to take the six singles from Forever Your Girl and rank them. So I'm sure you've listened to these front to back over and over again, Chris. Oh, well, off, so I can just, I've probably heard this album. It's up there with, you know, the albums that I've heard as many times in my life as anything else. My sister owned this on CD and played this on absolute repeat i can still picture the cover i could almost before you even put these in the thing i probably i would have gotten eight out of the eight out of the what is it 10 or 11 tracks like in order for what they were just from doing it so i know this album uh you know start to finish the probably the only reason i haven't mentioned her more in some of the episodes is i refuse to you know acknowledge anyone who used to be in any way involved for the los angeles lakers as a true Ooh. sixers fan she was a lakers girl I therefore do not acknowledge Paul Abdul. That's you, a joke. You've, you've, acknowledged, you've acknowledged artists with Celtics ties, and yet <laughs> you're not a Did I not purpose? Fan. Yeah. You, 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 who did you mention who made like a song for the Celtics in the last, in our, in the Libby Cudmore episode? Somebody. Anyways, <laughs> anyway, I, I remember these things. So six singles from Forever Your Girl you have knocked out. 
We have The Way That You Love Me, Straight Up, the title track, Forever Your Girl, Cold Hearted, and Opposites Attract. Chris, what would how would you rank these six? Do you from, want me to go first? From best to worst. Yes, please. So I have a clear number one. I will say that. Straight Up to me is number one by a decent amount. Oh, oh, I then, oh. I then have a number, like two and three would be uh, Cold Hearted and Opposites Attract. I'm mm-hmm. less sort of... I'm not necessarily like sort of like that. I don't don't feel as strongly, but I think I would go opposites attract first, then cold hearted. Okay. Uh, then I would go forever your girl. The way that you love me and knocked out. I think that's going to be my order. Okay. We're, 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 we're kind of in the same ballpark. So I would, I would also lead off a straight up. I think straight up is easily the best song of the album. I think it's a clear one. And then there's a gap. Then number two to me is Cold Hearted. I think Cold Hearted is terrific. It's sort of in the vein of Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson. It's And it's late in the album. So you kind of like, oh, here's something that I didn't expect this kind of jam to happen. And, and it happens. You're like, hey, that's great. Then I think there's a gulf between two and three. And three is Forever Your Girl to me. Then it's op- then an opposite track. Then it's The Way That You Love Me. Then it's Opposites Attract. And then it's Knocked Out. But I could almost swap Opposites Attract and Knocked Out. I have never really been a fan of Opposites Attract. I think it's a pretty lightweight song that has, you know, it's your sort of hello, goodbye thing. Yes, no, smoking, don't smoke, whatever. And it doesn't have more going for it than that. That's the only thing going for it. But that's my read on Opposites Attract. And also, of course, the cartoon cat, which is really weird. Yeah, I don't think it has the hook of some of the others, so I can... I can understand that. I do think that there is sort of a a cleverness to it. That's you know, it's clever enough that I think it uh, it works. But I'm what is, I, what I, is I, clever I about that? Like songwriting? Well, whatever. It's, a, it's not like I mean, it is cliche, but it's fine. It's like it knows that it's being a cliche, and it just does the cliche. Okay. Well, I guess the one thing is that Paul Abdul, to me, especially on this album, maybe not so much in her next album, but on this album. She's in on the joke a little bit. She's sort of in on it. Like she, she has fun with the tracks. She knows that she might not be the most gifted vocalist ever, but she really does ride these melodies, melodies really well. Uh, has a great time with it. The production's fun. It's a little too polished, a little too 80s, obviously, but it's a fun listen. It's a really fun listen. I'm just glad that we got to talk about it for a few minutes. Now let's go into something much darker and, <laughs> and, and much tougher to grit through. Chris. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk a little bit about the Wall, live in Berlin, by Roger Waters. I mentioned this at the end of our 1990 episode. Our uh, our graphic artist uh, Aaron Delashma, my good friend, he strongly encouraged me that we should do the uh, version of "Comfortably Numb," which is already inducted into the Hall of Songs from this concert as its own standalone song. It is really good. I mean, it's like an eight-minute version. The band are involved. Van Morrison is involved, and it does sound good. There are also very 90s-ish uh stars on the ballot like brian adams features prominently 
some of it works really well. Like I said, I think that the Comfortably Numb does sound great. The Brian Adams, there's a back-to-back uh, with, uh, you know, the Vols Empty Spaces. I think Brian Adams sounds really good on that. Yeah. And actually, it does kind of work pretty well. The Cindy Lauper thing, as much as I love Cindy Lauper, does not necessarily work. But uh, yeah. a couple quick things. This was, in some ways, my gateway to Pink Floyd. So I do kind of appreciate that. It was Oof. like this sort of burst in well it's like it got me into listening to the wall as a full album and then i went to go listen to more of their albums i what i sort of love about this is the quintessential 90s to it where it was like in addition to sort of grabbing all these people who are stars there was this idea of roger waters seeing the berlin wall coming down and thinking hey wait I was part of a band that made an album called The Wall. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is take this event and make it about me just because The Wall happens to go across both. And so, I mean, if you ever watch the video to this, it's this unbelievably over-the-top theatrical, you know, there are literal things of like the walls falling down and all of this, even though obviously, as we've talked about on this podcast, Pink Floyd's The Wall, you know, not a literal wall. The Berlin Wall, actually was a literal wall and uh it's like sort of this grabbing of this turning into something and that like makes it about roger waters but again in some places does kind of work and gives us these sort of uh you know a few moments in this performance that do really sound great and again that comfortably numb is great go listen to it it's good uh go listen to this section with brian adams there's some good music here i would recommend if you're bored just play this album it's like there's not terrible music on it as much as you know you might think there is roger waters is like the prototypical boomer i guess he's a little bit too old to be a boomer just like slightly too old but to me he's just the prototypical boomer because it's always like what how can i insert myself into this thing that makes (laughs) it like makes me really fulfilled as a person and doesn't do anything for anybody else because if you think about what the wall is about, it's about this this rock star guy who has all these problems in his life, and it makes him tumble into essentially becoming a neo Nazi. So they're performing this in Germany, you know, where Nazism spread not many years before this. Then, of course, you have, I mean, obviously, the results of World War II, creating this political divide, creating Russia coming in and and buying up all this land. And now we have split Berlin in half and split Germany in half. And there is a wall. Roger Waters. No. (laughs) Comfortably Numb is one of the greatest songs of all time. And it needs to be done here right now at this moment. That is my moment. I am a boomer. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'll be honest. I have not listened to the wall live in Berlin. Maybe I will one day. I like it's the wall good. as an album. I like the wall as an album, the studio. It's great. But I, you know, I, I Roger, I'm a David Gilmore guy. All right. So the, my only retort to this is basically, this is what rock and roll is. It is inserting <laughs> itself into places where people are not necessarily asking for it. I mean, oh. it is the quintessential rock and roll moment. It's like, oh, look, you know, this, this moment is happening. It is cultural. We should all join together. And it's like, no, I'm going to do a concert about it. I'm going to invite all my friends and we're going to record it. We're going to do a live album. There will be an accompanying video. Then we'll release it on vinyl in 30 years in like this deluxe edition that has outtakes. It's perfect. It's the quintessential 1990 moment. And Roger Waters is the quintessential 1990, you know, throwback rock star. 
I, I'm sure I'm sure you can weave the story that way. I don't know. Billy Joel performing in Moscow. This is what rock and roll is. <laughs> Didn't All he right. do that with Elton John? I mean, come on. I know. <laughs> just, it's just so much, man. <laughs> well, let's talk about something a little more smooth and a little more fresh and a little more easy. Let's talk about Babyface. Whatever you want, whatever you want, baby. It's all right with me. It's all right with me. You got that Because we mentioned him a little bit with Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel in our 1988 episode, but I wanted to dive in a little bit more to this guy. Kenneth Edmonds, born 1959 in Indianapolis. Who gave him his professional name? Bootsy Collins, because he looked like a baby. Babyface played in several groups, The Deal being one of them with Antonio L.A. Reed. They'd stay in the group until 88, go on their own to write, produce, and perform for themselves. In 89, they formed La Face Records, L.A. as in La and Face, Babyface. That would become very dominant in the 90s. Babyface would be dominant himself. Already, though, in the 80s, he was dominant, writing some of the best slow jams out there. In fact, in 1983, he wrote the song Slow Jam for Midnight Star, which to many is one of the quintessential and earliest examples of the Quiet Storm radio format sound. Babyface's 1989 album, Tender Lover, that's his first big stab as a solo artist that features four top 30 singles. Chris, uh, your thoughts on Babyface as we end the 80s and the New Jack Swing sound and the Quiet Storm sound and this R&B sound coalescing into something that's obviously going to take off in the pop charts in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, this was all over the radio. I loved a lot of this stuff when it was coming out, especially the Bobby Brown songs. Like, you know, I, I talked about that, I guess, when we... uh. Uh, we're discussing my prerogative. I mean, this was, it was such a, like, I don't even know how to, you know, you know, say it. it was like, it really was this, it felt like it was different, even though it had a lot of roots in some of the older, like you said, the quiet storm, even a little bit of Motown. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was some history there, but it did feel like it was new and it was definitely, it was there it was omnipresent. So I wanted to pick out five songs either written or co-written by Babyface from this 87 to 90 era that I think encapsulate the Babyface experience and sort of get you hyped up for the 90s and what will become a reign of terror for this man. Starting with The Deal, his band, Two Occasions. This is from 1987. Babyface co-sings lead vocals on it. The band also has L.A. Reid on it. This is the clear standout from their album and shows exactly how good he was at writing and recording. This is a great song. Next up is Dial My Heart by The Boys. So The Boys are a sort of second-tier New Jack Swing and R&B group from the 80s. This was a number one R&B hit from 88, but it very clearly features that Bobby Brown New Jack Swing sound. You listen to Dial My Heart and you were like, wait a sec, this could obviously be on Don't Be Cruel. Maybe it was thought of as a Don't Be Cruel track at one point, I'm not sure, but this definitely has that same sound. Then you got My 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 by Johnny Gill. Now Johnny Gill, this big solo star, part of New Edition for a little bit. This is from 88 and this really befits his huskier tone. 
And there is prominent saxophone on this track by man of the moment, Kenny G. Another guy we haven't talked about yet. Kenny G has this big moment in the late 80s. I guess we're not going to talk about him after this. Oh, well. This is Superwoman by Karen White. You probably heard Superwoman at some point in your life. This was a number eight hit from White's self-titled 89 debut. This is a song that has really good bones. So a couple of years later, Gladys Knight, Dionne Warwick, and Patti LaBelle, the troika of diva, auntie, beauty in pop and R&B music, they would do this song. It would be a Gladys Knight song. The other two would be part of it. This uh, was a big hit for them for Gladys Knight in 91. And finally, maybe my favorite of this whole era, Baby Faces, Can't Stop by After 7. So Ready or Not is the song with more lasting power from the debut album from After 7. This is a vocal group much in the same vein as The Boys. This song is written, it's almost comically written. I think Babyface is just kind of going through the motions at this point. He knew he could write anything and it'd be a hit. This is basically like, I slept with you. I can't stop thinking about it. It was a great night. That's basically the whole song. But it's got a big hook. This was a number six hit in 1996, pop hit, and I'm just a sucker for it. This is a great little track. So Babyface also wrote or co-wrote a number of big, well-known songs from this era, including The Whispers' Rocksteady, which is a great, great, more up-tempo R&B jam that kind of shows where Bobby Brown's sound is going to be. Pebbles' Girlfriend, this is another big pop hit, and obviously all those big Bobby Brown hits. Roni is terrific, tender Roni, Roni. Rock with you underrated track from that album and yup babyface even also co-wrote on our own from ghostbusters 2 can you do the rap chris no no i cannot although i did hear that song recently i like it i'm trying to think of how it starts can i get there no i'm gonna throw a party for a bunch of children with all the while Stands over the building. Gotta put the proton. Pack. I mean, I can't do it. I can't. Do that it. song really does do everything that you want in a soundtrack song, where it, yep. like it tells the entire story of the movie in like a forty-five minute rap in the middle of the song. But not about you know the master of evil trying to battle my boys. That's not legal. Yeah, it's great. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Try that with Star Wars. You can't do it. Nope, not even close. All right, so that is. The end of the fun that we've had today in our Veterans Committee episode. Chris, anything that you want to add about 87 and 90 before we close the book? I know we used to do something. We used to say back in our early Veterans Committee episodes, like who is the artist that sort of defines this era of time? Do you have one from 87 to 90 that you would pick out? Oh, I know that's a question out of just like the clear. It's got to be Madonna, right? Madonna was the name that jumped into my head. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's probably right. Public enemies. Right uh, there. I mean, it's interesting. We've done, uh, two Depeche Mode songs over that period. And we've done, we had two Guns N' Roses songs that got in. One thing I should, I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I spoke way too long about hair metal earlier, but in about the influence, but the interesting thing to me about hair metal is that a lot of what it did was it got people to try to make music that didn't sound like that. And we're almost to the grunge era where clearly there was like an almost express thing that we're like, we're not going to be hair metal. We're going to do this. And guns and roses had a little bit of that to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if I was going to, I would probably say it's sort of a joint, a joint number one between Madonna and guns and roses. I'm going to go with Madonna. 
Fair. I mean, we've already I've already expressed my thoughts on Guns N' Roses and our Libby Club yeah, more. Yeah, no, that's no, all fair. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, that is it for the Veterans Committee episode. Let's talk about the people that do stuff for us. Chris, who do we thank? We have to thank Stock Music Media for our theme song. Uh, we love the 90s theme song. That is terrific. And thank you to Aaron DeLashman at Piper Down Productions for our uh, graphic design work, uh, doing our logo and our guitar pick black. So thank you to you for putting in the hard work. Thank you to everybody who does stuff for us. And thank you for voting. Thank you for listening. All of you guys are great. Please tell people that you know about our podcast. We'd love to get more listeners. Our next episode will be the recap episode from our 36th election that will take place on October 7th. Then we will have our 1991 episode of Hall of Songs that comes out on October 9th, along with an entirely new ballot, which includes songs from this Veterans Committee episode. So get ready for that on October 9th as well. We're then going to take a two-week break between 1991 and 1992. So I guess it's a three-week break. Let's be real. It's really three weeks. So we'll take that extended week break after that just so that we can get our affairs in order. We got some stuff going on in our lives. And then we'll be back with our 1992 episode later in October. Can I just say we're going to need it? Uh, I WXPN did a thing a few years ago, the local radio station about the best years of music. And to me, it was like hands down 1991 was the best year. So we're going to need a breather. Yeah. 1991 is it. It's stacked. Already looking at what we have uh, potentially on this ballot. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough to figure out what the top 12 are. So all you 1972 people can, you know, screw off, go listen to John Lennon. <laughs> 91. I'll kick it ass, kick its ass. Well, 72 is not imagined by the way, you know, uh, that, 71, right? right? Yeah. yeah. 72 is sometime in New York city, which I mean, I guess, you know, that's not a good album either. It's okay. All right. That's it for Hall of Songs. Thank you for listening. We will see you on October 7th for our recap episode from the 36th election. Until then, I'm Tim. I will get by. I'm Chris. Prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs>